0: Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm KJ Kumala Dune. Today, we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Dr. Gordon Adams, Professor Emeritus of International Politics at American University and former Senior White House Budget Official for National Security Spending, discusses a new approach for formulating foreign policy. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Dr. Adams today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. I want to welcome you to the
1: 439th meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. It's nice to see everyone here today and to welcome those listening on the stations of Maine Public Radio. Today's meeting comes to you from the Elks Event Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look. Each month, the Midcoast Forum, since its founding in 1983, has an invited expert to speak on some aspect of foreign affairs and uh, to answer questions on this issue Uh, issues that are critical to the formulation of U.S. policy. Audios of past forum talks, information on upcoming forum programs, and information on how to become a forum member are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. We are pleased today to have Dr. Gordon Adams to speak on a new approach to formulating foreign policy. Dr. Gordon Adams is Professor Emeritus of International Politics at the School of International Service, American University. He is a non-resident fellow of Washington-based Quincy Institute and a distinguished fellow at the Stimson Center. He retired to Maine after a long career in national security policymaking and budgeting. In 1983, Dr. Adams founded and then directed for 10 years the Defense Budget Project in Washington, which is now the Center for Strategic Budgetary Assessments. In 1993, he became the senior White House budget official for national security spending as associate director of the Office of Management and Budget. He spent five years in that position overseeing the United States budgets and operations for intelligence, defense, diplomacy, and foreign assistance. After a brief stint as Deputy Director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, Dr. Adams taught national security policy, institutions, and budgeting at the Elliott School, George Washington University, and at the School of International Service at American University. He has written, co-written, or edited several books on national security, including Mission Creep, The Militarization of U.S. Foreign Policy, Published by Georgetown University Press in 2014. He writes and speaks regularly on national security and foreign policy issues and has appeared in the New York Times, in Foreign Policy Magazine and Responsible Statescrafts magazine, and on Maine Public's Main Calling. In Maine, Dr. Adams has served on the Advisory Committee to Refugee and Immigration Services, Catholic Charities, and the Program Committee of the Camden Conference. Dr. Adams is also an active Thespian, including with the Camden Shakespeare Festival. He lives in Brunswick for he actively writes poetry, acts, opines, gardens, and tends to his cat, Gordon. <laughs> welcome to the Midcoast Forum. <laughs> Thank you, George.
2: Thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, and let me first express my appreciation to you and to all of you for coming, for inviting me to speak. I have for many years listened over the radio, main, pu- main, main public, to the talks that have been broadcast at the main forum, Mid Coast forum, and I just think that you have a wonderful, wonderful history here in a 400-plus programs, lots of history of people bring a lot of wisdom to the people of the state of Maine. I'm also glad to be here uh, in the Camden-Rockport-Rockland region, which I kind of consider my second home in the state of Maine, uh, partly because of my work with uh, the Camden Conference on the program committee for a while, and uh, Jim Matlack and other people that I know are here today have been very involved with the conference, uh, and uh, partly because, as George so kindly mentioned, I have worked... Five or six years now on stage in the summer uh, in the amphitheater in Camden outside the library doing Shakespeare productions. So I promise not to engage in any recitation here today. I'm, I, I uh, frequently close with a poem. I might go down and grab it and close on it uh, at the end of what I have to say here because I do that as well. Um, But what I have been asked to talk to today, it's a kind of a bland title. I'm amazed, in fact, that all of you showed up for it. But (laughs) that said, um, what I hope to say is somewhat provocative. I'm about to make the, the speaker's worst mistake, which is to actually speak to things in which the audience that he's addressing are an expert. All right, so I'm going to say a lot of things about the State Department and the way we organize and structure the foreign relations and diplomacy of the United States. Uh, some of them are quite consciously and deliberately provocative, so I expect some provocative responses back, and I welcome that. Um, but um, I felt it important to do that. I'm, so I'm, I'm carrying coals to Newcastle, I understand that, but I'm about to offer you my particular lump of coal in your Christmas stocking. Um, so let, let, I'm going to try to say three things here. Thing number one is the world has changed. Oh, yes, we all know that. But I want to say some specific, th- specific things about the way the world has changed and makes the job of our diplomacy even harder than it ever was. The second thing I want to talk about is and are we structured and do we operate in a way that makes us possible to cope in this new world? And I will make a number of references in there to work that I did about a year ago that was published by the Quincy Institute, which is a report on the structure and functioning of the State Department and the civilian diplomatic institutions, the American government. And the third thing I want to say at the, at the closing is a brief comment on why, even with the world changed, even fixing everything that may be not working so well in our diplomacy, the American diplomatic establishment is going to have a hard time selling the product. I'll just leave that a mystery for you right now, for the moment, and come back to what I mean by that. But but starting at the top, wow, do we see a world in chaos. Oh my God. And I'm not talking for the moment anything inside the borders of the United States, but with Russia poised to invade the Ukraine, with a civil war going on in Ethiopia, with the Iranian Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action in, in the balance, very much in the balance today, with China's aircraft buzzing the Taiwan airspace, uh, with the United States losing, yes, it was a loss, chalk it up, zero one one in Afghanistan. Uh, with a global pandemic, with extreme weather changes, with economic turbulence, with vulnerable cyberspace, uh, political instability, and democracy apparently in retreat. And I'll come back to that. Uh, The the challenge that America's diplomacy carries is awesome. It, It way outweighs a lot of previous eras in American history since the end of the Second World War. The world is full of challenges, and I would say... American diplomacy is at a crossroads. It's a it's a kind of a, a liminal moment for America's diplomacy. And what I'm going to suggest as I go through this is we badly need a new realism and new institutions, because the world situation today and has for the last five or ten years systematically challenged all the things many of us thought, and I've lived through the entirety of the Cold War, uh, about the United States its role in the world, our image of ourselves, the image others have of us as a nation. All of that is in doubt, from the exceptional nation to the indispensable nation to the necessary leader to the guarantee of a rules-based international order. From my perspective over time, what we're seeing is throw that stuff away. It's not relevant to the real world. And we do not have institutions and processes that help us perform any of those functions at this point. But we're not yet ready to change. It's not clear. In other words, we're up to the task. So what do I mean about the world changing? I said, everybody knows the world's changing. Yeah, we live in a new world. Whatever, whatever. It's language, right? So let me specify what I mean by that in two specific ways. Number one, there is a visible, even measurable, obvious decline in the relative U.S. power in the rest of the world, and the rise of the rest. Fareed Zakaria coined that term probably 15 or 20 years ago, the rise of the rest. China, yes, of course, a rising power. But what I think is really fascinating about the current order is the rise of the rest on a regional basis, too. The increasingly independent, active, challenging role in the regional and international politics as a whole of countries like Turkey and Saudi, Saudi Arabia and India and Iran and Japan and Israel and, yes, even Brazil. A series of regional powers, even the Australians, are playing more independent, more assertive roles Let me give you just one small vignette, at least from my perspective, uh, which is that if what we're seeing in the Middle East today is the obvious disappearance of the United States as a mediating power in the region, but the rise of other countries as clearly mediating powers in the region, cutting their own security arrangements. The Saudis and the UAE with the Iranians, right? The Abraham Accords. From my point of view, do not be misled to think that this was somehow a Trump foreign policy success story, the Abraham Accords. It was a series of agreements between Israel and various countries, the Saudis and in the GCC, which they are shaping and defining at their own initiative and then hauling Uncle Sam on board at the end of the process. This is not an American success story. This is a regional reordering that is going on, driven by, primarily by the countries in the region. And that's just one example of the kind of things that is going on. The United States is not making the rules anymore. The rules are being made by players in the region and some players on the global stage. So that is, at one to me, one of the fundamental meanings of this is a different world. We cannot assume the role that we played before is the role we continue to play. The other set of changes, it seems perfectly obvious in the world of COVID and the pandemic, is the meaning of security. What is on the table in the security agenda has changed. Pandemics, climate change and global warming, migration, economic struggles and changes, technology struggles and changes, race and ethnic struggles and changes, the disintegration of governance in a lot of countries into either authoritarianism or disorder. None of those sound to me like the guy who went to Columbia University and studied diplomatic history in the 1960s. That's no longer the agenda that I was growing up and weaned on. It's a very different agenda, and it poses different challenges for American statecraft. None of those agenda items, I would argue, are subject to a unilateral fix or an American-defined set of rules. They are almost axiomatically multilateral problems. And we have to deal with them with a whole new way of approaching multilateralism. America, in other words, has become a kind of a Gulliver to a lot of countries in the world. The Gulliver that was tied down and disabled in Iraq, tied down and disabled in Afghanistan. Uh, The Lilliputians are winning. And Gulliver is in trouble, right? Right? no longer omniscient, no longer omnipotent, and not an order that will be restored. So that's a very confrontational issue, and there's not, it's not entirely clear to me that the policy makers in Washington get that yet. They're still fighting about who lost Afghanistan, who's about to lose the Ukraine, as if it was ours to lose, uh, who's going to make Iran behave, uh, You know, who's going to make Putin behave, There's a sort of a veil of unreality about some of that rhetoric given the context of change in the world. We look powerless because we are. This is very hard to accept. As I say, I was born in 1941, so I lived through the entirety of the Cold War so far. And these are very hard realities to accept given the realities we thought we grew up with. So... Let me move to the second question that I wanted to talk about. What have we built to cope with these challenges? Are our policy, but even more to the point, are our are cap- capabilities appropriate to this change? Right? That, to me, is a fundamental question because if we have the world that has changed and we don't have the right capabilities in place to deal with it, we're in deeper trouble than I thought. Fundamental stipulation here, from my perspective, having worked in this system for 30 or 40 years at least, uh, the way we conceptualize, think about, organize, and structure our foreign policy institutions is vastly over Vastly. And authority and institutions and funding have drained over the years from the institutions around the civilian aspects of statecraft well into the bucket of the Department of Defense. I'm not here saying Department of Defense is a bunch of bad guys. What I am saying is power has drifted institutionally in our government into an institution which is less and less appropriate to the agenda that I just described to you. And tools that we need to have on the diplomatic side are eroding. Okay, policy is being written basic policy is being written at DOD. It was very striking to me at the beginning of the Biden administration, which emphasizes, I will point out, the rebalancing of the tools of statecraft toward diplomacy. And that's an official rhetoric from the president, from the State Department, from the National Security Council. The China strategy review is led and operated in the Defense Department. The, glo- the, st- the strategy review that is currently being done on national security strategy will be released in about a month is being led in the Defense Department and briefed by Colin Kahl, who's the Undersecretary for Policy in the Defense Department. I know of no similar exercise happening in the State Department. There is not. There is a national security strategy exercise going on in the National Security Council, but the State Department's voice is relatively silent here. Our civilian instruments, from my perspective, and this is a perspective formed by 10 years of working on defense issues, as George so kindly described it, five years where every piece of American statecraft came across my desk. Civilian, military, economic, political, informational, you name it. And from another 20 or 25 years since I left government, uh, working in, at, on, around, with the State Department and USAID on efforts to change structures and institutions in those bodies with, I have to confess, a large degree of failure. Frustrating failure. Uh, It's not enough to say that the collapse of our civilian institutions is Donald J. Trump's fault, and that may be the only time I mention his name today but it has been repeatedly said that because Trump eviscerated some reaches of the State Department, routinely scorned and ignored the advice that was coming from the diplomatic side of his administration, that he is responsible for the collapse and weakness of American diplomacy. I'm going to assert here that the American civilian institutions have been flawed for decades, in many ways dysfunctional for decades And I'm not kicking a department that's already on the ground. I'm experiencing what I have done for a good 25 or 30 years working with, at, over, under the civilian institutions of American statecraft. The deterioration of our diplomatic capability has been going on for at least 25 years. And some of this damage is completely self-inflicted. We have a civilian set of institutions, primarily here I'm talking about the State Department and USAID, but I'll mention in a moment why I say that, that, to whom we have given lots of money and lots of people in the last 25 years. So if you are hearing we need more money in diplomacy and we need more people in diplomacy, civilian and foreign service, I'm going to assert here that that's the wrong answer to the problem. We don't need more money. We don't need more people. We may need to put money in different places and do different things with the people we have, but more money and more people will not fix the problems that I see. In fact, since 2000, uh, this has peaked in level, but since 2000, we have more than doubled the money we put into foreign affairs, the civilian programs of the United States government, the civilian people who do that work. We've more than doubled it from $23.5 billion to $56.3 billion, if you want the actual number. And it's going to be maybe as high as $62 billion this year. The State Department's own budget, the money that they will expend, has gone from $7.8 billion in 2000 to $28.9 billion in 2018. It hasn't gone down significantly from there. It's leveled there. So we significantly increased the money. We've doubled the size of the foreign service of the United States. We don't realize it, but we have. We've doubled it. We have doubled the size of the civil service working with state and AID. In other words, we've done the money, we've done the resources, but the structural problems that we're facing remain. And what are they? Let me just run through them very quickly, and then we can do more of this in discussion if you want. First off... And this is something that you might think the State Department's not responsible for, but we have an institutional diaspora of the institutions that do America's civilian statecraft. They're all over the place. We have 30 different agencies and institutions in the federal government at least that have a presence on the diplomatic platform overseas, each doing its own thing. The big ones, CIA, FBI, DOD but you can go straight to EPA and HHS and Department of Labor and the Department of Justice, and you can just keep rolling. Homeland Security, everybody has got an international affairs program, even those institutions for which the Secretary of State assumes some responsibility. There are 8 or 10 of them alone, including the Millennium Challenge Corporation and USAID and the Peace Corps. We have what I call a diaspora of institutions, And although I've said that, you know, this is not particularly the State Department's fault, there is one way in which at the origins the State Department was the author of some of this diaspora. And that was in a decision in the late 1940s. Yeah, it was still alive. I mean, it was only five years, six years old, but still, just saying. Um, When the European Recovery Program was carved out of the State Department and put in the European Recovery Agency, because gentlemen do not do program. They were all gentlemen then. And the European Recovery Program was a program. And it was run by the European Recovery Program. So the Marshall Plan was not actually run by the State Department. It was conceived by the Secretary of State, but it was not run by the... And there is an institutional neuralgia that is true in lots of corners in the State Department that says, "Eh, you know, this thing about running a program... Not so much, that's kind of AID's job and somebody else's job, but we don't actually do program. We represent, report, negotiate. We're the diplomats. It's a real problem because over the years, then what happened, that precedent reproduced itself regularly in the creation of new programs like USIA and USAID and the Millennium Challenge Corporation, and they all became the sons and daughters of the diaspora. That now leaves the Secretary of State systematically, structurally disempowered in terms of doing her or his job, because they can't turn around and make the trains run on time. By contrast, and there are some contrasts here, the Department of Defense corralled that all together in 1947 in the National Security Act and said there will be a Department of Defense. And then conducted probably 15 years worth of warfare until Bob McNamara came in as Secretary of Defense and said, God damn it, I'm the Secretary of Defense and I'm going to run the programs. Right? And they created a system to do it in the Defense Department. So Pratt's problem one. Problem number two is what I would call the absence of a strategic culture in the State Department. Now, what I mean by that is that there's no internal coherent authoritative, strategic planning that guides policy or decisions or budgeting in the State Department. I can go into that in detail if you want. There are two offices that do budget. There's one office that claims to do strategy, but it's buried under management and it doesn't really do strategy. Efforts to do this, such as the Quadrennial Development and Diplomacy Review, were not strategic exercises, and I'll prepare to tell you why. So plans and budgets that come from the State Department and AID lack a, a, a rationale, lack a substantive analytical basis rooted in strategy that says, here's why we're doing this. As a result, and I know Rick Kessler is in the room. He may re- or may not want to reinforce this. The Congress is always a little bit skeptical about what comes up from the State Department, much more than they are any skeptical about what comes up from the Defense Department which has a whole architecture, which I can describe to you for doing this. Uh, the problem is made worse in some particular areas. I, I'm just going to mention in passing, and we can come back, if you like, to security assistance. The United States government, through both defense and state, provides 25 to $30 billion a year worth of security assistance and security cooperation programs around the globe. And what's happened, and this I've done research study on over the last 20 years, what's happened is basically the migration to do that and the money to do it have been migrated to the Defense Department. And the State Department's piece of security assistance languishes without much of a sense of strategic direction, without much of a sense of strategic planning, and they have no authority to tell the Defense Department what to do in security assistance. They lack that authority. Now, this is the Secretary of State who supposedly is coordinating the exercise of American overseas engagement, and the special operators in the, American, in the machinery of the military have, have officers and enlistees in uh, 80 countries around the world, each of them a clear engagement of American forward presence, each of them operating essentially without direction from anybody on the civilian side of American government. And I'll come back to that if you want to talk about it. Uh, Fourth area, human resources. This is the one where I really feel I ought to duck behind the podium. There's just a lot of retired FSOs out there. right? How many of you retired former employees, civil or foreign, from the State Department? Hands up. Well, maybe I'm in less trouble than I thought. <laughs> uh, human resources, and I'm, I'm going to make some, waltz on some lily pads here because I don't want to bog you on details, but we really have to focus on how we recruit, train, and promote in particularly in the Foreign Service of the United States that the, the the what used to be pale male in Yale as they say of the Foreign Service of the United States is still quite pale pretty heavily male and they've diversified the educational institutions quite a bit uh, but seven percent of the Foreign Service is Latinx six percent of Foreign Service generalists FSO generalists, 6% are black. 30% of the senior uh, mili- senior uh, foreign service popul- population is, 34% is female. Uh, number has improved, but that's the only one that has. The ratios of minorities in the foreign service of the United States has been flat for 20 years. No progress at all. Has to change. I'm not the only one to point it out. The the uh, Belfer Center on Reforming the State Department study that they did a year ago, about the same time as mine came out, has made the same point. You know, this the, the diversity of the United States is not represented in the diversity of our, our representation overseas. Um, training. Let me just assert, and again, we can come back and talk about it, but we're still largely training foreign service officers at the beginning, but at no point in further in their career, except for language and culture when they're assigned somewhere else, right? There is no training in strategy, program management, development, implementation, and evaluation, and yet all these people are going to end up in an embassy somewhere overseas where they're going to have a hand-on program, but they're not trained to that skill or on the new issue agenda that I described earlier in terms of the changes abroad in the world, right? We need to do, and again, the Belfer Center study, the American Academy of Diplomacy, uh, the American Foreign Service Association, they've all made this point. One way or another, the skill sets no longer match the challenges. There are some wonderful people, but the skill sets we're recruiting and training don't match and the promotion architecture for the Foreign Service, I would argue, does not now reward things that they're going to need to have, like people who've done a management rotation or an administration cone rotation or people who worked for the, foreign, for the uh, Agency for International Development, people who worked at the Defense Department or at the Justice Department or EPA or HHS or the Department of Labor. You don't get a reward in the promotion ladder for doing that. That's a kind of a step aside in the career pattern of a diplomat, but it means we have diplomats that don't match the agenda anymore and don't have the skill sets for what they're being asked to do. And we do not provide the kind of open-armed welcome to Foreign Service officers who want to go to, I don't care where, Berkeley, Missoula, Kansas City, Harvard, MIT, you name it, to get an advanced degree, to do some very skilled training in some of these areas, go to a business school, For example, we don't have an architecture in the Foreign Service that fosters that, right? Now, I want to say, just for invidious contrast, that my friends and colleagues over at the Defense Department and the military do not make those mistakes. They do not make those mistakes. The services, especially the Air Force, including the Army, and to some degree the Navy, all send their senior officers out to do training, it's not, and I'm not talking shooting on a battlefield. I'm not talking gunnery range. I'm talking about going to the National Defense University, to the War College, to Harvard, to Newport, to the whole set of institutions that they have to do training as people move up their career and acquire larger responsibilities and need to manage and need to understand how to think strategically and need to know how other agencies operate. Colin Powell, and this goes back some time, may he rest in peace, Colin Powell became a White House fellow when he was a young military officer. Uh, And they said to him, uh, Colonel Powell, uh, where do you want to go to do your White House fellowship? He said, I want to go to OMB. Really? Can you imagine a Foreign Service officer going up the chain and saying, the first thing I want to do is go work at OMB? Well, you know, I'm an institutionalist here. I worked there was that ever a smart decision by Colin Powell because then he knew how the white house operated he knew what they did in the budget he knew how to talk to them he could speak their language he could go back and do the marvelous things that he did in his career knowing how to talk to everybody else in the federal government not stupid we don't reward our foreign service officers for making choices like that we don't incentivize them we don't encourage them as they go up the ladder of promotion to do things like that. Okay, so that's just a, a, a broad brush. Uh, it's a 30-page report. I'll take any requests they want me to send it to or I'll just send it to George and if anybody wants it, you can ask George. Um, but that's, that's the shorthand version. Now, last point I want to make and then I'll close and look forward to what you have to ask and say. Um, reforming the State Department has been studied to death. And I mean really studied to death because in doing my report and in doing the work I've done over the last 20 years, I looked at all the other studies that were done and I could line two long bookshelves of the studies of how to fix the State Department. I even had a hand in three or four of them. You know, if they hadn't bothered to print it on both sides of the page, you could use the backside for note paper, because that's the extent to which they've actually been implemented. A lot of people in the Foreign Service, a lot of people in this world know what I'm talking about. I've, I've discussed this agenda with three retired former Directors General of the Foreign Service. And I'm not going to give you their names. But all three of them knew these dysfunctionalities were a fundamental problem that the State Department had to grapple with. Okay, but even if we fixed it all, would our diplomacy more, be more effective in this changed world? And I want to close with it. Um, and I'm here to suggest that I think our diplomats, all of them right now, are being disempowered the way I felt they were disempowered at last week's Democracy Summit. Uh, Our failures at home, this is not something we usually talk about in a foreign policy conference, um, our failures at home sink our foreign policy. If we're talking about You know, ethnic diversity, you know, the welcoming of all types, the end of colonialism and colonial patterns in overseas countries, and we are still coping in a horrible way right now with the structural racism and the culture wars in our own country. What's the ambassador going to say? If we're preaching other countries to do democracy as the president did last week, but ours is failing... What credibility does the American diplomat have to push democracy on other people? I commend to your reading the Freedom House latest report on the sinking of the American ranking in the, number of, in the democratic countries of the world, or Bart Gellman's piece in the latest Atlantic about the threats to our elections, just for an indication that the problems that we have of corruption and conflicts of interest and transparency of immigration, of the political morass of elections that's currently happening, what is the credibility for diplomats? If we want to talk about decent health care for everybody overseas, but we'll have the health care system that's the most expensive and produces the worst outcomes of the industrial world, what's our credibility? If we're pushing the issues of women's rights as we did with weeping tears in Afghanistan, but we're watching an assault on a woman's right to choose in the United States, what's the diplomat's credibility? If we're talking about reconciliation of warring cultures abroad, when the United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its incarcerated people, two-thirds of whom are black and Latinx, what's the diplomat's credibility in Latin America, in Africa? If we talk about the rise of the Chinese military and never talk about the strength of our own, uh, if we worry about the vulnerability of all of us to cyber intrusions and don't talk about a more than $10 billion Department of Defense NSA effort to intrude in other people's cyberspace called cyber offensive operations, what's our credibility? If we argue uh, that overseas the trade in small weapons should be banned or constrained, but we're incapable of dealing with the most widespread gun culture in the world, our own, what's our credibility? Or in sum, if we're talking about the importance of civilian control of the military, but we see political generals, out of scope missions at the border of the United States, an attempt, let's call it what it is, on January 6th to carry out a coup d'etat in the United States, when we are strengthening militaries in other countries that have weak governance, thereby making their politics less stable, what is our diplomat's credibility? So the thing that concerns me in the end, and I'll stop there, is our diplomats perfectly trained, perfectly organized, perfectly promoted, perfectly ready to tackle this new agenda. Right now, What we're doing to ourselves as a country is weakening their hand, is weakening their effort, is weakening what they can do. I'm sorry to paint a fairly gloomy picture here, but I guess maybe right now I'm feeling a little bit gloomy about this, a little frustrated uh, by the lacunae of what we're dealing with. So let me stop there. George, over to you for Mm. questions. Oh, thank you. I forgot it.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you, Gordon. Uh, Very, very thought-provoking, that's for sure. Um, I think all of us are feeling somewhat gloomy right now, so you're just adding to our gloom already. Uh, While we collect uh, uh, questions, and I'm sure there'll be quite a few of them, um, from, from all the comments you made, it seems to me what you're talking about in the State Department is changing the basic culture of the State Department and making that culture not only internally uh, uh, stronger in the U.S. government, but also uh, able to to um, deal with the changes in the world today. What are the one or two things you really think you need to do to kick-start that and get it going? I mean, there have been all these studies. Nothing's happened.
2: Yeah. Um, not easy to do. I, I talked about three or four different areas where I think there's a lot of work to do, The easiest one to do, and the hardest one to do, because it is a cultural change, I think, is for the Foreign Service to take a really good, hard look at itself and to see if it is, in fact, pursuing the right uh, architecture of recruitment, of training, of promotion, uh, inside the Foreign Service of the United States. And that needs to be both an internal and an external operation. And the the way it's easy is because a lot of that can be done without going to Congress for the authority to do anything. It's changing the internal architecture of the way people, what the recruitment looks like, uh, the way people are trained, re- training requirements, uh, the opportunities to take uh, cross-agency positions, the opportunities to go and do education and training. Uh, Almost all of those things can be done by interagency agreement or by activity within the department itself. What it really requires to happen, it's the hardest thing to do, because, as I think you were implying question your question, George, it's it's the hardest thing to do because it is at the heart of the Foreign Service culture. Uh, The way we've always done things is the way we will do things, and it's not easy. Uh, In 1986... It took the Senate Armed Services Committee operating over the uh, opposition uh, of the Department of Defense and the military services to pass a law called the Goldwater Nichols Act, which in effect said to the military, in your promotion architecture, when you get to the point of flag officer, right, admiral, general, when you get to that point of promotion, if you have not done joint service somewhere, do not pass go, do not collect a star. You must do joint service, which means working at the joint staff, working inside another service. They forced jointness on the military who did not want it. And they forced it from the outside. Right? And that can be done if you have the right architecture in the Congress. I don't think we do today. But it can, it can be done. And what the services have discovered was it greatly empowered them to do that, when a general understood what an admiral did, when somebody saw strategy from not from the land policy but from the sea policy or the air policy perspective and the joint staff, they got very smart about integrated operations, right? And so all of a sudden, what was disdained and resisted and rejected and pushed off against turned out to be what worked for them beautifully, right? So either for, that's make it makes it hard because the foreign service will resist it. I know they do. I've sat in study groups with some of my good friends in the Foreign Service, and it's just hard to get there. right? So it's going to take political uh, backing. Herein lies the problem. If what you need is the President and the Secretary of the State to say fixing the Foreign Service is the number one item on my agenda, then you're in trouble. Because what president and what secretary of state is going to measure his or her success on the basis of fixing the foreign service? Can you imagine running for president in 2024 and saying, I fixed the foreign service of the United States? It's not a politically potent Mm -hmm. issue. It's just critically important to our future statecraft. So it's going to take a president who, who tackles it, and a Secretary of State who thinks it's important. I'm here to tell you I don't think Tony Blinken does. He's a good friend, but this is not the first item on his agenda, and he's got a very busy agenda. Um, To say, even though it's not politically popular, you know, it's also not politically unpopular. So go in there and make it a four-year agenda to fix this culture just in the personnel side of the Department of State. So that, that, to me, is sort of the first thing to be done the second most important thing to be done, and I won't get into the weeds here, but there is a way of tying together policy definition and budgetary planning in the State Department the way it is done, more or less, in the Department of Defense, you know, which is an integrated operation at the top in the office of the Secretary... We got bits and pieces in the State Department. I helped them create something called F, which is the Foreign Assistance Bureau, and they do foreign assistance planning, but they don't do strategy. So it's not integrated, and it's not the whole State Department budget, but it's a start. So building on that is thing too that I think would help.
1: Thank you. Um, there's a, quite a few questions here, and uh, they're all worded in a different way, but they all get kind of at the same, same question i uh, read the one I think is a little, the most general. You've detailed problems at the bottom and middle of the State Department, but aren't there real problems at the top? Another one is, does Tony Blinken realize the department needs to recruit or develop these type of skills? There are problems at the top. Um, and and I'm, I'm
2: talking about them generically instead of in terms of individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, generically, the biggest problem is that nobody at the top of the State Department gives a damn about management. Now you may think that that's crazy, but it's it's true, right? There's a Secretary of State, there's a Deputy Secretary of State, and until Barack Obama's administration, there was a third or second Deputy Secretary, third position called the Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources. A job that was put into legislation by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee under the chairmanship of, you guessed it, Joe Biden, uh, which was never filled, right? By contrast the architecture in the Defense Department, the, the secretary does, looks out, the deputy secretary looks in. And he or she is responsible for management, resources, budget planning, internal operations, running the ship, right? There's no such position until somebody was appointed to it at the beginning of the Obama administration, Jack Lew, Who became the Deputy Secretary of State number two, and then Tom Knight succeeded him, and Heather Higginbotham succeeded him, and now Brian McEwen has that job in the current administration. Unfortunately, none of them are managers. So they filled the job, but they didn't fill it with a person that had the right skill set. As a result, there's still not anybody who oversees all, and I mean all, of the management of the State Department. And USAID, there's the Undersecretary of State for Management. What they do is that narrower block of things that are personnel and buildings, you know, the the, uh, diplomatic security people, that's a narrow stovepipe, not the management, how to program and those things get pulled together. Do we have security in the right places? Well, what are the right places? How do we know? That's over here. It's not over here. Right, so that's to my mind the number one the number one and number two things that could be dealt with largely without congressional
1: intrusion, which is helpful actually, let's follow up then on the very last thing you said because you didn't really mention the relationship between Congress and the State Department. Could you comment on that and whether there's something Congress could do to help this problem?
2: <laughs> I'm tempted to ask Rick I'm Kessler. I'm from the government.
1: I'm here to help, yes.
2: I'd like Rick to come in here and answer that question. It's <laughs> um, I, you know, it was fascinating from the perch I had at OMB to watch Congress and uh, the various institutions of civilian statecraft work with each other or at each other or against each other. Um, the the uh, foreign relations, foreign affairs committees don't really have the muscle in Congress to do the things that they need to do to challenge it. They've done some good work. Uh, Howard Berman uh, over on the House side uh, completely re- when he was chair, completely rewrote the Foreign Assistance Act of the United States, 1961 piece of legislation that's been christmas treeed with barnacles ever since but never completely reviewed and rewritten and redesigned. That was 1961, it's a long time. So we attach stuff to it, we nail it into the corners, you know, uh, like calling cards on a bar wall. And it's just not, it's not the kind of thing that we really need to be doing. Um, So the the, uh, working architecture of relationship with the Congress for the State Department is uh, the appropriators, the people who really vote the money not the people who do the authorizing. And the relationship with the appropriators is is a game where most of the institutions, I talked about the diaspora, all those agencies that are out there doing foreign programs, each of them goes to their appropriators and talks to their appropriators about their money, but there's not a strong coordinated strategy coming from the Secretary of State about how all those pieces relate to each other. So it's a series of partial deals from the appropriations point of view. Um, and then there's the rhetorical argument. I expect to hear some of this. Maybe not from you. You're probably way too smart. Um, which is, gee, if you know Congress, the complaint is Congress is always attaching requirements and you know, earmarks and things to our, you know, we want to do this program, and they keep saying, well, you must do this here, and you must do that there, and they're micromanaging our budget, and it's just, it's horrible. Until you realize, working inside the system, that there is a constant discussion going on between, for example, USAID and the appropriators on the Hill, with USAID politely suggesting that certain earmarks in certain areas might be very useful for USAID to direct their funding. In other words, this is a lot more complicated interaction Mm -hmm. than the way the rhetoric tells you, we wish Congress would take its hands off our budget. Well, you know, I'm sure every agency wishes Congress would take its hands off their budget. But the deal-making that goes on, given our system, is constant constant so um i don't you know the the bottom line here is that congress is not in a position to write strategy they never could they never will they don't write strategy right the authorizers in the congress need and i'm not sure i have the answer to this having not worked in the congress need a stronger architecture than they have to impose order in on the hill in their area subject matter um but uh, fundamentally, uh, the department strengthens its hand in that relationship, I would I would argue, if it comes with a more coherent sense of why they are doing what they're doing and why they want to do it. And that comes back to the budget and planning and strategy
1: pieces I was talking about. This one I find particularly interesting uh, in terms of a question, how do you square the diminished status of the US worldwide with the leading roles we continue to play in fields such as medicine, science, education, the economy, intelligence, uh, innova- in- innovation, all of that. We see have all of these strengths, so how do we square that with their in- decreasing influence?
2: Um, you know, what, are, what, what is power and what are the ways that governments exercise it? Um, that differs from country to country. If you're in Putin's Russia... Uh, the way power can be exercised is, I should say, about as centralized as you can possibly imagine it being. So whatever your national assets are, you can call upon them to do your bidding if you're the dictator of the show. Right? We, don't, uh, we obviously don't have that, and despite what some of the rhetoric, political rhetoric we hear, the United States probably has the weakest central government of any industrialized country in the world. The weakest central government, all our internal argument is about, "Ah, the government's too big, got to get the government off my back, got to get rid of the government, the government this, the government that. We have, by comparison, the weakest central government, the ability of the president, as we're seeing Joe Biden confront regularly, the inability of the president to get things done in our structure, amplified now by an internal division that's the worst since the Civil War, Uh, makes it almost impossible for him to mobilize the kinds of things that you've talked about at the service of national policy. So we do it in a very, very decentralized way. The reality is that some of these things don't depend on the government much at all. Let's uh, take technology, for example. The government investment can do a lot of things at the margin. If they really want to go gangbusters, we can get a COVID vaccine in a pretty damn rapid period of time. Right? As long as we're willing to subsidize 100% the private sector companies that do it. Right? We subsidize them 100%, they will respond. There's nothing like that to get your COVID. Right? Uh, but generally, the level of f- federal investment in technology over the last 50 years, as National Science Foundation shows, has been shrinking as a proportion of the total national investment in research and development. Our technologies come in the private sector. A few, very few, come out of Defense Department investments or NSF grants or whatever, but if you look at the money, the money is private sector money. The the innovation is private sector innovation. We don't have an easy mechanism to corral that and direct it in any way, and the argument is we shouldn't, because you get more innovation and more results out of it having having it operate in a private sector setting. So not every issue that we're talking about is susceptible to the federal government applying it as an instrument of power in international relations. It's more, you know, uh, rounding up the cattle and hoping some don't stray while they're all wandering out there on the prairie uh, than it is a coordinated national approach to international economy, to finances, to technology you know, uh, even to climate change, there, of course, we're hampered by our political institutions from doing anything significant.
1: And let's, I want to wrap it up with one final question, which you could probably spend several hours answering, <laughs> but we're going to give you a couple minutes. And so it's Christmas, and you get to design from scratch a new and improved infrastructure for foreign affairs. <laughs> what would it look like? What are the basic elements of this strategy and policy? It's uh, reverse engineering the
2: critique I offered. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, The best answer I can give to that uh, is that my, not just mine, but several people's view of how to structure our foreign relations institutions uh, and processes uh, is contained, you're going to love this, in the appendix to a report put out by something called the HELP Commission about... 13 years ago, it was a commission chaired by Mary Bush that was um, created to answer in part the question you have just posed, what can we do to restore one of these many studies. And a group of us were pulled together and asked if you could do exactly what you said, that is to say, blow it up, Christmas Day. And recreate something entirely different. It is in that appendix. There's a full architecture of what it would look like, but it is a, you know, in some a more integrated institution, with virtually all of the capabilities of overseas engagement by the government that we have, uh, with an equal attention and priority given to. Uh, strategy and policy to development to public diplomacy to uh soft power, cultural affairs and that kind of thing um, and and a an architecture of personnel that does more or less what I was critiquing that is to say it requires people career wise to function between these things. There is greater integration and I know how challenging this is between the Civil Service and the Foreign Service. We've got 13,500 in the Foreign Service and 10,500 in the Civil Service. And they work to different promotional architectures and it's really hard to get them to work in sync with each other. Uh, So there's a whole architecture that pulls the personnel side together and recreates a structure so that places like MCC and USAID disappear. They are folded into this different architecture. It remakes both the foreign assistance and the diplomatic architecture of the American government. It just doesn't have state just eat USIA and acto, which is what happened in 1998. It literally says, we need to build a ministry of foreign affairs, and here's what it's responsible for. So you can, you can Google help commission, Mary Bush, and you'll find the help commission report from I think it was 2008. And Go to the appendix, and there is a whole architecture of what a
1: different foreign relations architecture might look like. I think the whole world you can usually find in an appendix somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I thank you very much. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Dr. Gordon Adams. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from our alarm clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimalajun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.